Well, we are so thankful to have the wonderful speakers that God has given us this week, men who have trained and have devoted their life to the preaching and teaching of God's Word. And I was so thankful that Pastor Tim Lehman agreed to come and speak in Bible conference. He has a wonderful church in Maryland out in, actually, it's a beautiful church building out in the middle of the country. And if you are, a, if you are ever able to be a part of a local church where you have a godly, humble, and loving pastor, I want you to know that you are greatly blessed of the Lord. And so the people of Calvary Baptist Church in Westminster, Maryland, know that the Lord has blessed them with that kind of a pastor. And I'm so glad that he's come to pastor us this week in the preaching of God's Word. And so thank you, Pastor Layman, for your ministry among us. And as he comes to deliver his final message, let's give him a warm welcome. Thank you very much. Would you please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15? Luke 15. It's been a very enjoyable week. I've loved being here with my wife. We've renewed so many acquaintances and uh, got to talk to so many people and see our people from uh, our church here. It's been uh, a very enjoyable week. But I know that having gone through 10 Bible conferences in my life, that by Friday morning, Bible conference fatigue begins to set in. It's a real thing. And uh, you've heard so many messages again and again and again and again. It's very easy to just not hear it anymore. But I want to encourage you to please listen carefully because I think this part of the parable has great application for us. I love good books. I probably buy too many. If I have a vice, that's what it is. Some books have provocative titles that just grab the attention of even the casual reader. Several years ago, I obtained a book like this. I knew nothing of the author or if the book was any good, but I loved the title. It was entitled, The Pharisee's Guide to Total Holiness. And as you might suspect, there's a good bit of sarcasm in the book. But there are also so many thought-provoking comments by the author, William Coleman. And the one thing I remember from the book is that he says that there is a little bit of Pharisee in all of us. And you know what? I think he's right. So what do you know about the Pharisees? The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that in the time of Christ, there were about 6,000 Pharisees. The name Pharisee probably comes from a root word that means to separate. So the Pharisees were the separate ones or the separatists. They emerged as a distinct movement after the Maccabean Revolt, which took place about 160 years before the birth of our Lord. They had a noble beginning and many positive traits. In fact, they were very well-liked by the common people. We think of the Pharisees, of course, in a negative light. If someone says to you today, you're a Pharisee, it's not a compliment. But the people that Jesus ministered to thought they were admirable and respectable and models of what a good Jew should be. They were conservative, traditional, and patriotic. They were all about God and country. They were intentional in living holy lives. In fact, they followed many things that were not even explicitly found in Scripture that were over the years added as a hedge about the law. They even had a burden to reach the lost in faraway places. They lived very disciplined lives that would put the most disciplined Christian that you know to shame. And they knew God's word incredibly well. But they were the Lord's constant antagonist. And Jesus denounced the Pharisees more than any other group that he encountered. If you doubt me, just read Matthew 23 sometime. 
He spoke against them publicly and often angered them and embarrassed them. And eventually, these conservative separatists murdered the Son of God, their Messiah. It's just amazing. They were experts in the Old Testament law that pointed to Christ. And when Christ was right in their midst, they didn't see him, but they hated him and they killed him. The Pharisees stand as the Bible's best example of the danger of formal religion. They are an uncomfortable reminder that a person can promote traditional values and religious conservatism and yet be far from God. Perhaps the best portrait of a Pharisee found in Scripture is in the last part of the parable of the prodigal son. I want to remind you that this parable is the last in a trilogy of parables that are found in Luke 15, sometimes known as the Bible's lost and founds. And the occasion for these parables is found in the first two verses. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And he spake this parable unto them. And that was the beginning of three parables. Rather than directly confronting them or just giving them a simple answer, Jesus tells three stories, three parables that explain very powerfully why he gave attention to notoriously wicked people. And the answer, of course, is because God delights in graciously saving repentant sinners. Recently, of course, we've all been watching on the news this horrible earthquake in Turkey. And perhaps you've seen that even after like nearly a week, rescuers have pulled people who were still alive out of the rubble. And when they did that, there was great celebration. Everyone in those rescue teams were clapping and rejoicing and crying for joy because this person that should have been dead is still alive and their life has been saved. They have been rescued. That's the kind of love and the kind of joy that God has in rescuing people who are broken and bound in the bondage of sin. Now, the parable of the prodigal son begins in verse 11. And he said, a certain man had two sons. I mentioned to you on Wednesday night that this parable is not so much about the sons as it is that certain man, the father who represents God's heart for sinners, this compassionate, gracious man. And it's about two sons, not just one. We tend to put all of our focus on this younger son. He's a colorful character. He just attracts everyone's attention. In fact, if we were writing the story, we'd probably write the end after verse 24 because the the story seems to come to a natural closing. In fact, if you look with it, it says, and they began to be married. That's kind of like the equivalent of, and they lived happily ever after. But that's not where Jesus stops. He has more to say. The real teeth, the disturbing application of this parable is found in the last eight verses. Let me remind you that the prodigal son represents the notoriously wicked people that Jesus frequently ministered to. This younger son is a picture of tax collectors who were despised by the Jews and prostitutes, these people who came to hear the Lord's. While this older son represents in a striking way the Pharisees who were complaining about Jesus' audience. And I think that when Jesus told this parable and he tells about the older brother's response, what he was doing was holding up a mirror for the Pharisees to see themselves. And I suspect that their faces grew red both with embarrassment and anger. Let me ask you an important question. What do you make of this older brother? 
Have you ever read this parable or heard this while a a preacher was preaching and and looked down through the passage and says, you know what? He kind of has a point. His father did go a little overboard when his younger brother came home. And he really did kind of do too much. Because if I were in that situation... I think I might respond just like the older brother and think to myself, this is not fair. Can I suggest that if that's your response, you might have a little Pharisee inside of you? Once again, I'd like to connect the second half of this famous parable to our conference theme, Hesed. What does Hesed love have to do with the parable of the prodigal son? Well, in the first act of this parable, we have this vivid picture of God's Hesed love for notoriously sinful people. Remember, I said the Pharisees thought that God's love was just for people who were observant of the law, who were good Jews. And so God didn't care about those people. They didn't experience his Hesed love. So why should they give them any attention? But Jesus' ministry revealed that that thinking was all wrong, that their theology was flawed, that they didn't understand fundamentally who God was. And in the second half of this famous parable, we have the opposite of the father's response in the older son. We have in this portrait of the older brother how the Pharisees responded to scandalous sinners. And one of the ways that we learn, and one of the great ways of teaching people is by holding up two things and showing a contrast. And here in this parable, we have this vivid, living contrast between the gracious father and the angry Pharisee. And this is intended to be instructive for us. The message of this parable is clear. I'm just going to give you what it teaches right here at the outset. Instead of avoiding, condemning, and rejecting notorious sinners like the Pharisees, Christian disciples should engage them, receive them, and love them like Jesus did because God delights to save sinners. So let me ask you an awkward question. Do you respond to sinful people like Jesus or like the Pharisees? This is the key question and the main point of application that comes out of this famous story. Perhaps you're asking yourself, how could I know if I were a Pharisee? I'm glad you asked. I want to extract from this text four timeless traits of a Pharisee. And of course, my point is, is that Christians must intentionally avoid developing a pharisaical spirit. It happens so easily. We have to be conscious of this. So what are these four traits? Number one, Pharisees have no real love for sinners. Look with me at verses 25 through 27. Now his elder son was in the field... And as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. The older brother hasn't heard about his younger brother's return. He was probably working in a distant field, and so the news had not reached him yet. But as he draws closer to home, at the end of the day, he hears singing, and he hears celebration, and he wonders to himself, what is going on? And so he asks one of the servant boys to go and check, and he comes back. And I can just imagine that he said these words with great enthusiasm. Your brother has come home. The fatted calf has been slaughtered. Your father is filled with joy because your brother has returned safe and sound. Now, how would you expect this brother to respond? This should have been the greatest news that he had ever heard. His brother had come home. His father, who had been a broken man since his 
kid brother left for the far country is now back to himself. In fact, he's better than he's ever been. He's filled with joy and with peace. The father and son were now reconciled. There was a closeness between them that had never been there before. This would, was to be a time of unprecedented celebration. You would expect to read that this older brother dropped his tools and he ran into the house and he embraced his brother in a big bear hug with tears streaming down his face because he loved his brother and his brother who may have died in the far country has returned. But that's not what happens. Why didn't he share in this joyful celebration? The answer is apparent because he didn't love his brother. He had no real compassion or concern for him. He had no desire to see him or reconnect from his estranged brother. He refers to his brother in verse 30 as, when talking to his father, as thy son. He's essentially saying to his dad, now listen, you may receive him back as your son, but I'm not recognizing him as my brother. The implication is obvious. He would have preferred if his brother never came home. He would have been pleased if his brother just stayed and died in the far country. He never wanted to see him again. Let me ask you a question. Are there some people that you can think of that you would prefer if they never got saved? In fact, the idea of them going to hell actually in some way pleases you because they have hurt you so deeply or someone that you love. They've brought such turmoil and bitterness to your heart that, that, that hounds you every day that you find some satisfaction in knowing at least they're going to hell and they'll suffer for eternity. Or maybe their sin is so disgusting and abhorrent that you secretly find satisfaction in the prospect of their future torments. You would never say it out loud, but that's what you think in the depths of your heart. My friend, if that's the way you feel, then you're responding to sinners more like a Pharisee instead of like Christ. But I want us now to look at a second characteristic of the Pharisees. Pharisees like to compare themselves with others favorably. As human beings, we are always comparing ourselves with one another. This is one of the, the downfalls of social media, right? It seems like everyone's having a great life. Everyone's dreams are coming true except for me. One of the great problems that we have is we make these comparisons. And that's one, one aspect of it can make us feel very discouraged and depressed. But another aspect is that sometimes we compare ourselves with others. We actually feel very superior. Look at verses 28 to 30 says of this older brother that he was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf." This other brother doesn't go into the celebration. He stays outside sulking. But the father graciously comes out to speak to him. Notice the comparison that he makes. He says, lo, these many years do I serve thee. He's saying, I am your faithful son. Remember, I'm the one that's dependable. I'm the one who does all the hard work around here when my kid brother was lazy. He says, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. He's very proud of his track record. He goes, I am always obedient to what you want me to do. I play by the rules. 
And then notice the comparison he makes. He now is going to describe his younger brother, describes him as the one who's devoured thy living. That is, he's very wasteful. And this gets to the very root of that term prodigal. Remember, it comes from verse 13. It's the Latin rendering of riotous living. He's saying, my kid brother has wasted one-third of our family fortune. What about that? I suspect that this older brother was by nature very frugal and conservative in his spending. Some people, that's just the natural bent of their character. Parents will know this. And when you all get married and have kids, you will, you will be amazed that from the womb, your children have certain traits that obviously you've never taught them. And some of your kids will be very frugal with their money. They will be reluctant to, to spend any pennies out of their piggy bank. And there'll be others of your kids that money burns a hole in their pocket. As soon as they get it, they got to spend it. And you can train, speak to them, and entreat them, but it's like you're fighting against the very bent of their character. He also accuses his brother of being immoral, of spending his money on prostitutes. Now, earlier in the parable, we don't actually read this detail. So perhaps this older brother's just assuming the worst, or maybe he's heard rumors in the far country about his little brother, or just maybe he's expressing what he would do if he went to the far country. At any rate, he describes his brother as wasteful, immoral, and disgraceful. And you know what? He was right. That was true of his brother. Pharisees always enjoy comparing themselves with others. It makes them feel so superior. Now, there's another parable just a few pages over in your Bible where we see this exact trait again. Turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 18, just ahead, a few pages. I only have to turn one page in my Bible. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. But the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Now, what I want you to focus on in verses 11 and 12, this is an amazing scene. You have in the temple this Pharisee and this publican, the tax collector, probably the most despised person in Jewish society because they were considered to be traitors and thieves. And what you need to remember is that in this time, Pharisees, the idea of silent prayer was virtually unknown. So he's there in the temple praying out loud, and there's this guy next to him. He says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this guy over here. Just imagine that. You're the publican trying to pray, and you hear this guy praying about you. What does he say? He says, I thank you that I'm not like this man, this extortioner who's unjust, who is adulterous, or even as this publican. He compares himself, and the comparison is very flattering. He's saying, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this person. And then verse 12, I thank you that I am this kind of person. I'm so disciplined. I'm so righteous before you. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Pharisees fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. Just imagine that. Two whole days of the week, they fasted, and they let everybody know about it. Everyone could tell the look on their face. Oh, 
It's fasting day. And they tithe. They tithe tiny little seeds that were spices. They were make sure that they counted every tenth one went to the Lord. They were very scrupulous, very, very careful. This is meant to be revolting to us. It's meant to have us turn away from it and say, I don't want to be like that guy. But we slip into that kind of pharisaical thinking so easily. I don't want to bind anybody's conscience and say that you can't say this famous expression. I don't hear that much anymore, but I used to always hear people say, but for the grace of God, there go I. And it can be said in the right way. The focus is truly on the grace of God. But how often have people said that thinking, thank you, Lord, that I'm so much better than this person. Now, what I'm laboring to show you is that both sons in this story are depraved sinners. One is a religious sinner. The other is a rebellious sinner. One is sanctimonious. The other is sensual. One sins more internally and the other sins more externally. But they are both equally wicked in the eyes of God. But that's not the way we tend to judge people. We like to measure other people by our own yardstick. Do you know what I mean by that? In other words, you judge people by the areas that you feel that you excel in. We do this in a variety of areas, not just moral areas. You know, if you're really physically fit and you're in the gym like three hours a day every day, you walk around and you measure yourself by every one man. Am I the only guy that works out around here? And you feel superior. The situation is this. If you are a hardworking, disciplined, frugal individual, you will be very tempted to measure other people by that yardstick. You're very proud of the way you manage your resources and your time. You're very quick to remind people that you are dependable. But the fact is that if you were a lost person, you would be the same way. It's not so much because the Spirit of God has brought about this fruit in your life. It's just the natural bent of your character. You ever tempted to compare yourselves with your roommates? I lived in the dorms in one way or another for nine years. I know about dorm life. Anybody have a dorm or a roommate who's a slob? They don't pick up after themselves. They don't clean up. Drives you crazy. And you go around and you think to yourself, man, I'm so much better than that person. I am so superior. You tell all your friends, you will not believe my roommates. Or maybe your roommate's just plain lazy. And they're not doing very well in school. And no wonder because they play video games all day long and all night long. And you're like, why did you even come here? Or maybe you watch and you, you never see them having their devotions or they never seem to pray. They never have their Bible open on their desk studying it. Meanwhile, you're going to mission prayer band and you're going on outreaches every weekend and, and you're going to prayer rooms and, and spending an hour in prayer. And you say to yourself, man, I am like light years ahead of that person. Satan loves to take a good thing, a zeal to walk closely with God and use it as a negative in our lives. On the other hand, we have some people here undoubtedly who have a temperament and a character more like the prodigal son. You're a more impulsive, spontaneous person. You like to have a good time. I saw this study the other day that said the college students that get poor grades in school are actually happier. And that students who work really hard and are really stressed about their grades are not very happy. And so some of you are reasoning, you know what, I just, I just frankly like to be happy, so I'm not going to put a lot of time into things. 
But if you're a more impulsive, spontaneous person who's prone to make bad choices and waste resources, you're likely to use a different measuring stick. You would emphasize the fact that you're a very generous and forgiving person. The old expression they used to use is, you know, if you saw a person in need, you'd give them the shirt off your back. People like the prodigal tend to say, I've made some bad choices in life, but I have a really good heart. And perhaps you would say, listen, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not a hypocrite. The point I'm trying to make is whether you are a prodigal or a Pharisee, you are still a wicked sinner who desperately need God's grace. Now look back with me, please, if you're not already there, at Luke 15. That brings me to the third trait of Pharisees, and that is Pharisees have no real love for God. The older brother's lack of love for his father is demonstrated in several ways in this passage. First of all, he shows no respect for his father. Look with me at verse 28. And he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and entreated him. He refuses to go into the house and enjoy the celebration. This would have been viewed as disgraceful in this culture. Everyone there would have noticed. The oldest son would have had a key role in this celebration. Some scholars suggest that he would have planned this whole affair, and he would have led in the festivities, and everyone would have rejoiced that the entire family was now reconciled. But this son not only fails to lead in the festivities, he fails to even come into the house. The firstborn son traditionally was supposed to guard his father's honor. But instead, this firstborn son places his father in a dishonorable and awkward situation. The father has to leave his guest and go out and talk to his sulking son. In a shame-based culture, this was a big deal. But the disrespect continues. In verse 29, we read that he said, Lo, these many years do I serve you. And that word, lo, has the idea of look. He's speaking with an attitude of disrespect. We would say he has a tone in his voice. You see, he has no real reverence for his father. There was no honor. There was no concern for his father's glory. All of this was a picture of the Pharisees who professed to honor God, but in fact, they dishonored him. Jesus said in Matthew 15 and verse 8, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They possessed a religion that impressed people, but it was abhorrent to God. So do you have a reverence for God? Do you honor him in the way you live your life? Do you ever stop and think about how your actions and reactions reflect on his name? Do you ever refrain from doing something because it would be a poor testimony about your God? It could be misunderstood. It could be misinterpreted. It could cast a shadow on your profession as a believer. But there's another clear evidence in this text that the Pharisees failed to love God. And that is that this older brother had no joy in working for his father. He says in verse 29, these many years do I serve thee. It literally reads, these many years have I slaved for you. How revealing this is. The son had no joy in working for his father. He describes it as pure servitude. You should not assume from this that he was doing backbreaking labor. No, he was the firstborn son of a wealthy man. He was giving orders and the servants were carrying them out. But in his mind, it was an irksome task. He had no joy in his life. His relationship with his father was simply one of fulfilling his duty. His work for his father was tedious, tiresome, and monotonous. This is how the older son felt about working for his father. And this is consistently a trait in man-made religion. You see, empty religion may bring respectability, 
but it will never bring true joy. Did you know that God requires that his servants serve him with joy? Psalm 100 and verse 2 says, serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 47 says, because thou servest not the Lord thy God with joyfulness and with gladness of heart. Moses there is explaining why God's judgment had come upon them. I love what the Puritan Jeremy Taylor says. He says, God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. I love that. Romans chapter 14 and verse 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Let me remind you that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. If you're truly yielded to God and the Spirit of God is working through you and you're walking with fellowship for the Lord, serving Him should be a joy. So let me ask you, You enjoy worshiping the Lord, enjoy going to services, enjoy coming here this morning, or you're like, oh, no, I have to go and hear another old preacher preach from the Word of God. That's not what I want to do. What about pastors that might be here? Do you enjoy serving the Lord? I'm told that one-third of pastors would resign at this instant if they had another job to go to because they're so depressed and so burned out. University faculty and staff, are you rejoicing that you get to serve the Lord here at Bob Jones University? What a privilege that is to invest in the lives of generation after generation of young people. It's so easy to just go through the motions You see, if we love our Heavenly Father, it will be a joy to serve Him. The reason this firstborn son hated his job is because he didn't really love his father. Notice how this is magnified by the way he describes the duration of his labor. He says, these many years, like a man in prison who numbers his days, he was doing hard time. You see, he wasn't working as a son He was working as a slave. It was not a labor of love, but the work of a disgruntled employee. In Genesis 29, we read of the patriarch Jacob working seven years for a man named Laban to the right to marry his daughter, Rachel. This has been called one of the most romantic verses in the Bible. It says that those seven years seemed like but a few days for the love that he had to her. They just flew by because his eye was on the prize. Even though he worked for a very difficult man who cheated him incessantly, the Bible says the time just went by. You see, your outlook will determine your attitude. Religious sinners don't love God. They don't love people. And thus, despite their claims to be obedient to God's law, they have actually violated the two main principles of the law as described by our Lord. The two tables hang on these propositional truths that we are to love God with all of our heart and our neighbor as ourselves. And the Pharisees who were zealous guardians of the law violated both of those. But why is it? Why were the Pharisees the way they were? That brings me to our final trait of a Pharisee. Number four, Pharisees have no understanding of the grace of God. I see this manifested in two ways. First of all, Pharisees believe they've earned God's favor. In verse 29, he says, I've served thee these many years, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandments. This is very much like the confession of the rich young ruler who said, all of these commandments have I kept from my youth. Now, how could these men honestly say this? 
The answer is because they had a wrong understanding of obedience. They were thinking of obedience and holiness as just a matter of external things. And so they would think to themselves like this, checking off the boxes. I don't worship idols. I don't take Yahweh's sacred name in vain. I remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. I don't kill people. I don't steal from others. I don't commit adultery. I'm 100% compliant with God's law. But that, of course, is a superficial understanding. But I think that there are people today who still think this way. Think you've earned God's favor that accepts you because of your impeccable track record. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't vape, I don't take drugs. I'm not sexually active like most young people my age. God must be very pleased to have me on his team. And we go around telling ourselves, I'm a responsible person. I'm a dependable employee. I play by the rules. That has to count for something with God. But the Bible says... In Isaiah 64 and verse 6, that all of your righteous deeds are as filthy rags, and by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. God is not impressed with your self-made righteousness. In fact, it's abhorrent to him, because when you fashion your own righteous covering from fig leaves, you are essentially saying, I don't need you, God, and I don't need your son to die for me. I can handle this myself. Secondly, Pharisees believe they deserve God's blessing. He complains at the end of verse 29, Thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. You see, it's not that he really had a different heart. He wanted to party too, just like his kid brother. He says, when have you ever thrown me a party? What he's saying is, I've earned your blessings. You ever feel that way with God? You ever feel like God owes you? I've heard many Christians say things similar to this. They face some unexpected trial and they say, I thought God would bless me if I followed him. Or I've been attending this church for 20 years and paying my tithes and now this happens? Why are so many Christians today disappointed with God? And why are so many people in our churches eaten up with bitterness toward God? Well, somehow they have come to the mistaken notion that God owes them. But God is debtor to no man. If God were to give you what you earned, you would go straight to hell. So how does the father respond to his disrespectful, pouting son. You would expect him to reprimand him, to speak very sternly to him. That's not what he does. Look at verse 31. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. The father is patient, gracious, gentle with this religious son just like he was with his rebellious son. The Greek word translated son in this verse is not the same that's used the other times in this parable. The father entreats his firstborn son with these words, my child. This should not be interpreted to mean that he was right with God and it certainly doesn't indicate that the Pharisees were right with God. But it does reveal that the father's outstretched arms of love were extended even to this angry son. This entreating continues with the words, thou art ever with me and all that I have is thine. Instead of rebuking his insolent son, he reassures him that a close relationship with him is still available and that all the blessings of the father's house are open to him if he will but come in. You see, you can be estranged from God in the far country or right outside the Father's back door. 
There are religious prodigals and rebellious prodigals. The message of this parable is not that God loves wicked people but rejects self-righteous sinners. No, the father desires that both sons, both types of sinners, come home and be reconciled to him. He saves both prodigals and Pharisees. He rescues both rebellious people and religious people. This parable concludes with the father explaining why it was appropriate to celebrate the return of the prodigal. And in so doing, Jesus is explaining to the Pharisees why it was fitting for him to give his time and attention to the lowest of sinners. Look with me at verse 32. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. But this parable abruptly ends without completing the story. So did the older brother go in and join in the celebration? Or did he stay outside, sulking outside the back door? Bible doesn't say. Why no ending? Well, Jesus, the greatest storyteller the world has ever known, is intentionally ending his story this way because he wants his readers to reflect on what they would do. So if you were the older brother, what would you do? You know your heart. You know your character. What would you do in that circumstance? Would you go in and celebrate Or would you remain outside and pout and say, this just isn't fair. This isn't right. I've earned better than this. Your response says a lot about who you are. So how should we apply the disturbing implications of this older brother? I'm going to say three things very briefly. Number one, we must find our assurance of salvation not in external conformity or in our family connections. This firstborn son looked good on the outside. I think that people in that village thought very highly of him. I think the elders in the synagogue said, isn't that a fine boy? Look how responsible and dependable he is. He's always here every Sabbath. But Jesus described the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 27, like a rotting carcass on the inside. You see, the older brother looked good on the outside, but inside he was filled with hatred and bitterness and pride, lots of pride. But he was responsible and compliant, and he was related to the father, but he didn't love his father. People often trust in the fact that they have a good reputation, that they are accepted by the community of believers because they have a good look, they know the right language, they know the culture, they know what's taboo and what's okay, and they're accepted as a full-fledged member. But inside, they may have a heart that is so far from God's. You should not find comfort in the fact that you're very disciplined. And of course you're a Christian. I mean, you're a student at BJU. No, my friends, that must not be the ground of your assurance. Or perhaps you're trusting in the fact that you have a connection to a really godly person like this older son. Maybe your dad's a pastor. Maybe your mom's a Sunday school teacher. Maybe you have a father who is a deacon that everyone looks to in your church as a model. And he ruled with a strong hand in his family. And so you followed along the rules. And wherever you've gone in the Christian community, you've been accepted because you're that man's child. But you have no relationship with God. Do you really know God or you're just a religious person that thinks you've earned God's favor 
and calculates that you're better than most people. You see, both prodigals and Pharisees desperately need God's grace. The second thing I want to say is for any pastors or aspiring pastors or church leaders that are here. And that is that our churches must carefully preach the gospel of grace so that we destroy that innate sense of self-righteousness that is within the hearts of religious people. We have to continually address the root of the issue, which is the heart, and not just the symptoms of the disease. We must be careful that we don't preach a vague moralism. So much of evangelical preaching that I hear today that is really popular, that attracts masses of supposed believers, is based on having a better life on this earth. Extracting principles from God's Word on how to have a better family and a better marriage and how to handle your finances and how to deal with a really difficult neighbor. It's kind of like an additive you put in your gas tank. It gives you better fuel economy than your unsaved people because you've got this life hack called the gospel. That's not why the Bible was written. It wasn't written so that you would have a better life in 21st century America and that you'd be able to live the American dream. We have to proclaim the danger of self-righteousness and of comparing ourselves favorably with others. We have to intentionally work lest our churches, our conservative churches, become just country clubs of people of like political beliefs and world outlook, but yet many of them may be far from God. Churches are dangerous places. They tend to attract older brother types. And our conservative churches, if we're not careful, can be like a Pharisee magnet. They're filled with disciplined people who have externalized Christianity into a few rules that they proudly obey. And these same people may have little love for God and no love for sinners and no joy in their hearts. This is why prodigals always complain that churches are filled with hypocrites. You know what? I never argue with them on that point. I concede that to them. Because both religious people and rebellious people need the gospel. I'm not suggesting that if you have any of the characteristics of a Pharisee that you're necessarily lost. Nor am I suggesting that all or most fundamentalists are Pharisees. However, I am suggesting that it's very possible for a conservative born-again believer to have the spirit of a Pharisee, to have no love for sinners, and very little love for God. And my final application is this. Christians should intentionally seek to engage scandalous sinners in gospel conversations. Now, I found it a little difficult to apply this because you guys... Most of you are students at Bob Jones University, and you're living in a very controlled environment. But that's going to change soon. You'll be out in the wide world living on your own. But do you know any drug addicts or homosexuals or violent felons by name? Have you ever really listened to a homeless man or woman tell their life story? I think that the vast majority of people in our churches would have to answer no to all of those because they steer clear of such people. In fact, they think it's a virtue that they're far, far removed from the most degrading elements of our culture. You see, we do have a little Pharisee in us. But Jesus not only knew such people, he shared meals with these kinds of people. Some of these things are impossible for you to do right now. But I've often challenged our people with things like, have you ever invited a homeless man or woman into your home to share a meal? Have you treated them not like a project, 
but as a human being who's made in the image of God who has the same problem that you do, and that's sin. Many years ago, I was trying to help a man named John. Gave him a great deal of my time. He was a chronic alcoholic. He made a profession of faith in the church in which I was serving at the time. And so for several months, I was following up on him daily. Took him out to eat, found housing for him, employment, health care. Had numerous Bible studies with him. Brought him into our house several times. He was there one Christmas day with my small children. I wish I could say that this story has a happy ending, but it doesn't. But what I discovered is that the more time I spent with this man, the more I cared for him. The more I saw that he was not some monster that I should avoid, but a sinner enslaved by years and years of addiction and bad choices and bondage, who desperately wanted to be free. You see, the reason why we don't love notorious sinners is because we don't know them. And that's usually because we don't want to know them. And I'll be honest with you, it's hard. It's difficult dealing with notorious sinners. It's often discouraging, hard work that bears little fruits. So I wanted to end on a practical note. I don't want to just club you over the head with some guilt and say, be dismissed. What can you do? What can you do even now in regards to sinful people who are far from God, whether they be religious people or rebellious sinners? First of all, I would encourage you, give you three things. Number one, pray every day that God would lead you to someone who's seeking the Lord, some lost person who's seeking the Lord. And I think if you start to pray this way, you will see that God will answer this and there will be people that will be divine appointments that come into your sphere in a casual meeting that God has intersected your paths and now you can give them the gospel. Then I encourage you to keep a list of lost people. I think that a lot of Christians, if you put them on the spot and said, name for me five lost people that you interact with, they would say, oh, blah, blah, blah. They don't know any lost people because they only ever are around Christians of like precious faith. Christian fellowship is incredible. It's very important. But it shouldn't be the only people that we know. And then we need to intentionally... Thirdly, seek to interact with people. We need to try to find ways to go where they are. There's a man that I know who is intentionally, he's a young man with a young family, and he's intentionally bought a house in a very sketchy neighborhood where you don't feel safe when you go to visit. He could have a house somewhere else. But he bought that house because he wants to be a light in that neighborhood. And every day, he goes to a little local restaurant and has his breakfast there. And he knows all the regular customers. He knows all the staff by name. He knows their life story. And I've seen him bring people from these interactions to church. And he helps them, and he prays with them, and he has a relationship with them. He's done this intentionally. In other words, if you just let nature take its course, and you just live the the typical Christian life, you might very well find that you almost never interact with lost people, that you don't even know their names, because... You might even think it's a virtue, but it's not. God has left us here to be salt and light. He wants us to have the heart of our Savior, which is a reflection of the heart of his Father for sinners. 
so that we can have the joy of being part of this grand enterprise of snatching sinners out of the clutches of death and destruction. May God help us to be faithful. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is always what we need to hear, that it's always timely. I pray that you would help us. Help me, Lord, to be more faithful and more effective in reaching sinners that we pass by every day. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.